0: Hello and welcome to the 27th episode of Breaching Extinction. This week I chatted with uh, the president of the Whale Sanctuary Project, executive director of Camilla Center for Animal Advocacy and neurobiologist Lori Marino about sanctuaries, science, and advocacy. Hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Finally, okay. oh, my pleasure. I'll, so I'll go ahead and just start with the first question. Okay. Um, so, what interests you in studying cetacean neurobiology?
1: I've been interested in cetacean neurobiology, or you know, the brains of dolphins and whales, since I was in graduate school. And although I've always been interested in in brains and what it's like to be a member of another species. I specifically got interested in dolphins and whales when I was looking through a book in graduate school and came upon a photograph of a dolphin brain, and I was hooked. I thought, wow, <laughs> that's a big, complex brain, has very different features from the human brain, and, and yeah, I, I could definitely get into studying this. So that's how I got started. <laughs>
0: Excellent. Excellent. Um, So tell us a little bit more about how the cetacean brain compares to the human brain.
1: The cetacean brain and the human brain are similar in some respects in that they are large, very large for the body size, Uh, they're very complex, they are mammalian, they're both mammalian brains, so they have a lot of features in common but they're very different in terms of what their cutting edge features are. So, you know, in the past 55 million years, dolphins and whales have evolved in a very different direction than their ancestors. um, And that's led them to have a very unusual, unique uh, brain. Uh, They have a brain that has some areas that are very, very large compared with humans, like the the auditory areas. Some parts of it are are, uh, actually not there at all, like the smell, Uh, they've lost the sense of smell. And then just generally, if you look at the pattern of convolutions on the surface of the brain, they're very, very different in primates and in cetaceans. And that means that their brains have been on a really different evolutionary trajectory from ours for a very long time.
0: Wow, that's really awesome. So I would assume that the, you know, the lack of area with smell and the large auditory areas are just because they don't necessarily need smell and that auditory component is more important?
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So in our brains as primates, we're very visual animals, so our, the parts of our brain that uh, have to do with vision and processing visual information are rather large. Of course, auditory information is also important to us because we have language. Uh, but in, in cetaceans, it's the reverse. Their auditory system is very well developed. Uh, and so they have uh, very large areas of the brain that are devoted to uh, hearing. Um, but it isn't just simply hearing; it's processing auditory information into some kind of a, a very complex communication system that works with the visual system. Uh, so, just like our brains, their brain has a lot of area devoted to integrating information in unusual, in in really complex ways.
0: Excellent. Um so I know that you've done a lot of research with neurobiology and, and um it's kind of like assumed that you don't you think that captivity is detrimental was there a specific moment in time that you came to this realization or was this a, a slower process
1: Well I after I did the study with Diana Reese uh, showing that bottlenose dolphins recognize themselves in mirrors I began to think about what it was like to be Uh, An individual who is self-aware, living in a concrete tank with nothing to do. And I started to realize that that didn't feel very good. And I started to learn more and more about where captive dolphins came from, the Japanese uh, drive hunts, um, and just all of the things. I did research on their welfare in, in the tanks. And all of that led me to at some point say, well, you know, I can't continue as much as I'm interested in whether, you know, other species of dolphins can recognize themselves in mirrors. And I could definitely go on to do more studies. uh, I just felt like I didn't want to promote uh, studying dolphins and whales in concrete tanks because I knew it wasn't good for them.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, before your research and other research, you know, people thought that zoos were a good idea and could potentially help and help us understanding animals. Why do you think that we still face resistance from people in zoos, even though we found new information that tells us otherwise? Why is it so hard for people to adapt?
1: Well, I think it's hard for people to adapt because it it means that they have to... Uh, consider the fact that they may not have been right um, you know, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance associated with saying well maybe you know all this time I shouldn't have been doing things that way and I want to do things differently so that's very difficult for us as as human beings and I also think that many people do still think that you know zoos and aquariums where people come and watch animals on display performing uh do, does have a benefit to animals in some way through education or conservation uh, they they may actually believe that uh, the problem is is that there there isn 't any actual evidence to support that belief
0: that is very important yeah i actually i got my start in a zoo when I was fourteen volunteering at a zoo oh. um, yeah and that 's where I kind of developed that passion for animals and you know, I thought I was going to be a zookeeper. And then, you know, as I got older and I went to college and I interacted with different animals, I, you know, shifted that belief. But that, you know, that was one of the things that was really preached in the zoos is like, this is good for conservation and for education. And I have seen funds like implemented in conservation efforts as a result of zoos which is a benefit yes um but you know i think maybe there's we can still support that goal but in another way in a way that doesn't harm animals um so i know that you're trying to get the whale sanctuary project started and i'm guessing this is a little bit to kind of combat those um those animals being in captivity can you tell us a little bit about this project why it's important and maybe how it can um, still support some of the the benefits that people see in zoos and aquariums?
1: Yes, sure. Uh, I started the Whale Sanctuary Project in 2016, and that came out of uh, a realization that, you know, these animals, dolphins and whales, don't do well in tanks. Uh, We have a lot of science now to back that up and support that. And so um, I started to think about, you know, what would be a solution to this obvious problem and we can't just you know take dolphins and whales who are living in tanks born in cat tanks and even if we wanted to dump them back in the ocean because they wouldn't know how to survive and so I took uh I took a tip from the rest of uh the the animal protection world and I saw that there were sanctuaries for elephants and tigers and you know, all kinds of animals that were very successful and there were none for dolphins and whales. So I I decided to start one and that was the beginning of the Whale Sanctuary Project. And uh, we are now, uh, four years later, uh, we've chosen a site in Nova Scotia and we are ready to begin the phase of uh, collecting data and permitting as well as design.
0: That's amazing. Um, Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Where are you guys going to put it? Um, But how did you guys come to choose that location?
1: We came to choose the location, which is Port Hilford on the eastern shore of Nova Scotia, after two and a half years of a lot of work (laughs) looking for uh, coves and bays that have the right characteristics for housing beluga whales and and uh, orcas and we looked at a number of sites on the pacific northwestern coast washington state in british columbia and we also looked up and down the coast of uh, nova scotia and we happened to find a site that was uh, adjacent to a wonderful community called sherbrooke and that community, uh, when they heard what we were doing, they actually su- suggested Port Hilford for, to us. And when we saw it, we were very interested. And now we are hoping to get a permit to continue to to build the first sanctuary there in North America for captive beluga whale and orchids.
0: Excellent. So the species that you're working on putting in there are just belugas and orcas. And are they the ones that are already in captive facilities? Or are you just trying to kind of transport them into the sanctuary?
1: Well, they are uh, the reason that uh, we chose belugas and orcas is because those two, that those two species uh, actually have the worst welfare in marine parks and aquariums. Um, and um uh, There's also other efforts uh, elsewhere um, where they're they're looking for sanctuaries for bottlenose dolphins, which is the other species that's really common in in marine parks. So with beluga whales and orcas, uh, we felt that it was a really important, uh, they were two species that we really had to pay attention to uh, because they really were suffering the most in the tanks, uh we also got a lot of our motivation from blackfish and a lot of the the buzz and the public uh sentiment around how orcas uh do in in concrete tanks so that's that's those are the two species we decided upon. yes,
0: excellent. So kind of your mission is to create a better welfare for animals that are already in captivity. Is that my yes. understanding?
1: Excellent. Exactly. Our mission is to create a permanent sanctuary in the ocean for captive belugas and orcas. And those sanctuary residents would come from uh, marine parks and uh, where we, we can uh, provide for them, An environment that is much, much closer to a natural environment. They'll be in the ocean, they'll be able to play with creatures in the ocean, they'll feel the tides, they'll have hundreds of, uh, they'll have about 300 times more space than the largest tank available in the world, more depth to dive. So they'll have a lot more of what they need to thrive.
0: Excellent. Um, So I know there's, you know, a lot of different facilities out there, like Clearwater Marine Aquarium is one that does like rescue, rehab and release. Um, Will you be able to release any of these animals or have they been in captivity too long?
1: They've been in captivity too long. We don't have any plans to release them. Okay. Uh, So so we're building a sanctuary where it will be their permanent home and we will take care of them. We'll feed them. uh, We will look after them. Uh, in, in, uh, this, in a netted-off area. Um, it's not a sea pen. It's something much of orders of magnitude greater than that. Um, it's a, what I call a little piece of the ocean, um, and it, it at least gets them closer to, to what they need. Um, but they can't be released. Uh, they just don't have survival skills. They don't know that live fish are food, they don't have social groups in the wild, with the exception of maybe one or two. So that would really be uh, much too risky. Yes. Yeah, that definitely
0: makes sense. Um, so Toki also known as Lolita, who's currently at the Miami sea Aquarium, is there? are there any plans for her to potentially
1: come, or are you guys trying to include her in these plans? Well, um, there is a lot of interest, in, and there has been a lot of interest in her, over the years. And we, we've we been working with uh, First Nations tribes, the Lemmy tribe, uh, and a lot of people in that area. Um, and if it turns out that Tokate is a candidate for transfer to a sanctuary, we'll work with the groups in the San Juan Islands to create a sanctuary for her. So uh, I think it's really important that she goes back to her natal waters Um, And we have a couple of sites there that probably would work well for her. So it's it's we stand ready to to help um, if if that becomes an opportunity. Yes.
0: Excellent. Um, I know with her, it is a little bit different since she did live in the wild before would there be any possibility of her going and being reunited with the southern residents given that she has had that prior experience or was it just too long ago
1: i don't know the answer to that and i think that would have to come uh, that would be a question that we would all have to address in a very uh uh uh, examined way. In other words, not right away, but we would see how she did in, in, in the sanctuary, see if there was any interaction between her and her natal uh, pod. Um, her mother, We know where her mother is, for instance, and take it one step at a time. Obviously, if she could not feed herself, uh, we could not let her uh, be released because she she wouldn't survive um so that was that is a question that doesn't have a hard no but would really uh be taken much further down the road if if this is what is going to happen
0: yes that definitely that makes a lot of sense um so logistically what does this look like? How how does one transport a whale? And then also, what is your facility going to look like? Because obviously it's in the wild, and if it's not like a sea pen, like visually, what can we expect?
1: Well, the, the cove uh, or bay that we've chosen is indeed um, um, sort of a Y-shaped or V-shaped cove. It's expansive, it's very large. It opens to the open ocean. Um, and we would create a cordoned-off portion of that bay uh, as, as a sanctuary. And so we would uh, transfer the animals from the tanks to the sanctuary using uh, standard practices of, of training the whale to go into a sling, and then the sling is then put onto a transport vehicle. The vehicle is then brought over to the sanctuary area, and the whale is then um, kept in an isolation area for a while to make sure that she or he is healthy and adapting and then gradually introduced to the much, much larger space. All of this takes uh, a while. It takes a lot of expertise and and experience in, in, in doing these kinds of things.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's that definitely sounds like a lot. Um, So when do you guys plan? So you're in the like the kind of blueprints of making it right now. Do you guys have a timeline for when this might be open or like what kind of hurdles? I'm sure you have like political type things and permits you have to get. What's what are the next steps?
1: Yes. Well, right now we're in the permitting phase, so we are going to be working in the next few months uh, to collect all the data and do all the analyses on water quality and and biodiversity and and just all the other uh, factors that we will need to to uh, successfully apply for a permit uh, from Nova Nova Scotia government and. Uh, We're also at the same time uh, developing uh, design possibilities so that if we do, you know, get when we do get a permit, um, we're ready to start implementing the design. Um, We're hoping that uh, we can have the first whale in the sanctuary by the end of 2021.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's so that could be so soon. That's so exciting. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I think that this is this is a really great project. And, you know, it's really important to have people out there that are leading and showing like, hey, like it's it's just inspiring that you were able to see like, hey, captivity was a mistake, but we can fix it because so many people get caught up and they don't want to to learn from it. So I'm really inspired by this project. Um, Thank and you. Yeah, of course. And then, you know, you were saying that you were going to be out there testing for water quality. I know some people had expressed concern for um, transmitting diseases from, you know, um, sanctuary whales to the native mm-hmm. whales. How would yeah. you combat that issue?
1: Well, we combat that issue in a number of ways. First of all, Uh, when we choose specific or individual whales to come to the sanctuary, we need to work with the facility that has those whales and gain access to all their veterinary records. We need to do a complete pathology analysis on them to see what kind of pathogen load they have, how healthy they are, just know everything about them possible. And then there will, of course, be um, an, a quarantine period. And also, the area we've chosen is not frequented by many uh, dolphins and whales. So the chances of uh, pathogen transfer are pretty low. But even in the case, uh, even if that is the case, we're taking a lot of precautions by me- making sure that if there's any. beluga whales who are free ranging and they come into the bay um, that they're kept away from the nets um, so that there's no you know uh, actual uh, touching because most of the the pathogens that we'd have to worry about uh, would be transferred uh, through touch and as long as we can prevent that then uh, the risk is is very, very low, and we'll take all precautions necessary.
0: excellent. Um, are there any other um, kind of issues that you've run into or challenges that you know people think could come up in this like just kind of like naysayers and how do you kind of go about navigating those issues?
1: Well, you navigate those issues by just going straightforward. forward um, sure, there are people who. Feel that it's still captivity and we should let them be released into the ocean. They'll know what to do. Um, And there are also people who feel that, you know, the best place for them is in a tank um, where they're cared for. But, you know, we will be caring for them. We will have an on-site veterinary facility. They will be fed. They will be cared for by a staff. Um, so, but they will also be in um, in the ocean, and so we are combining the best of both worlds. So, sure, there are a lot of naysayers, but there are a lot more people who re- recognize that this is really the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the, the way of the future. If we can get these animals out of tanks, we need to provide some place for them to live out their lives. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the answer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then hopefully, you know, we can do that and then eventually shut down all these facilities and not have a need for sanctuaries because they'll have lived their lives out. Exactly, that's <laughs> that,
1: that's, that's the hope. It's a long time down the road, it's way down the road, but. You have to start somewhere.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a long way down the road. I talked to Bianca Ewan, who is a film director, who was talking, she has a film called The Blackfish Effect, and she was saying that China mm-hmm. and a lot of Asian countries and Russia are just now starting this movement of marine mammal parks. Um, yeah. So hopefully we can switch that. Um, you know, what... Do you think that, um, like, what role do you think science should play in international and national policy when it comes to animal welfare?
1: I think science needs to play a central role. I really do. Um, Because it's the science that informs and provides the data. It's one thing for me to say, oh, I don't like seeing that killer whale in a tank. Mm -hmm. It's another thing for me to say... Here's a list of peer reviewed scientific papers that show that the welfare of killer whales living in tanks is poor. Mm-hmm. And, and this is, these are the ways that their welfare is compromised. Those are two very different approaches. They're not uh, mutually exclusive, but with the science you have the weight of data and scholarship behind you. And I think that it, it is not the case that science should stay out of it. If anything, science should be in the middle of it, right at the center.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree agree with that. Like we need to fundamentally root our decisions and our policies in science. Um, But before we can do that, obviously we know that that needs to happen. What steps do you think that we need to take in order to, you know, get politicians and the public to be um, to jump on board with science?
1: Well, we first need the scientists to jump on board. And I'm saying that because obviously, there are many, many scientists like myself who have also uh, become advocates for animals. And uh, we have many of them on our advisory group. Uh, There are many out there who have combined science and animal advocacy in a very successful way. But there is the vast majority of scientists uh, in my field, neuroscience, for instance, um, don't really venture far from just you know doing the science. Um, they don't really venture into advocacy. And I think that's a shame. I think that's a problem. And I think that it's important for young students uh, coming up to know that they can be scientists and advocates as well, and uh, that they should, you know, fight to be those scientist advocates because that's the really that's the strongest position for anyone to be in is to be the scholar, the, be the advocate who is also the scholar, um, and that's a very powerful uh, position, and that's what I hope to see more of
0: uh in generations coming up i 100 percent agree with you and i'm you know it's very reassuring to hear you say that because you know I, like i'm still in the processes uh, the process of coming into my career and i have a strong passion for research and i have wondered with doing this podcast and calling out politicians and you know trying to do what's right for these animals if that's going to jeopardize like my development as a scholar or my potential security in a job like that just because I think in science that's not the cultural norm like you're totally right people don't um stray outside of that but you know I'm glad to hear you you know think that that's important and I totally agree with you because you know what's the point of doing all this science if the animals you know if there are no animals to to understand
1: um, well exactly and I, I, I think you should just stay stay with it and stay focused on that and don't let anyone tell you that you can't be a scientist and an advocate because that is something that some people will tell you because that's convenient, but it's not the truth and and that's important for for you to know. Uh and and you know they're you know the the idea that you know scientific findings uh, don't have any implications for how we treat other animals is is just not the case. I mean any scientific findings in any area have implications uh when you go on the ground with them uh, otherwise they're just you know they're a study in a journal um but in the real world, uh, they have real implications.
0: They absolutely do. And science, you know, it's so important for people to to be literate in science. Um, and we need to, you know, create more yes. opportunities for that because, you know, the public is not to blame for why they don't necessarily as a whole back science just because the public school system doesn't allow for that you need a higher you know degree in order to achieve that Um, but we definitely need to work to make that more accessible and I think that's part of of this journey of saving the animals is getting everybody on page and having them understand the importance of science
1: Uh, right right and that science isn't uh dispassionate or cold or cruel Um, certainly there are things that can be cruel that you do in science but in any other area Uh, science is not synonymous with cruelty Um, science is simply a way of knowing things a methodology and and so people need to know that science is not the enemy (laughs) Um, it is just a way of knowing
0: no it's it's definitely not it's You know, science is exciting, and I, like, I think people get intimidated by it, but it's so fun to to try to solve real world puzzles. And, you know, science is the best way to do that because there's concrete evidence. Exactly. Um,
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So using science, um, and, you know, policy and whatnot, this podcast, you know, really focuses on the Southern resident killer whales. Yes. Um, So what do you think based on the science needs to happen in order to, um, effectively conserve the 72 Southern residents that are left?
1: Well, I think that what needs to happen is that we need to do two things. We need to leave them alone, and by that I mean everybody out of the water. We need to get out of the water um, and let them have their territory. Uh, And we need to find a way to uh, also uh, bring back the... Uh, Chinook salmon that they that they eat—that's their culture to eat primarily Chinook. Um, those two things I think have to happen. Um, of course, there are other things like there's pollution and so forth. Um, but I think at this point, anything that we really try to do um, might not be—you know—is—is is, it's risky, and so. I think the best thing is to let them have uh, their space and find a way to give them back the, the, the food that they depend upon. What might happen, um, and I hope this happens, is that instead of the Southern residents going extinct, if you will, Mm -hmm. that they will move on or they will no longer be resident in that area. And I know that's hard for a lot of people in that area to hear. San Juan Islands, I mean, really depends upon these animals. I've been there time and time again. It's a beautiful, wonderful place. Um, And they love the southern residents. But if it's between extinction and just moving somewhere else where they can feed, uh, then I think it would be better if they just moved off. And so uh, only time will tell, you know, how they will respond to this this stressor.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's difficult right now just because um, they're not being tracked in any way and we don't really know where they've gone. Just a quick interruption in this episode, because we had a little bit of technical difficulties. There's a part that got cut out, um, but Lori was saying that she thinks scientists are the ones that need to be on the water, and I'm going to let her continue um, and resume this episode.
1: ...them um, should be the ones on the water, tracking them, um, knowing who is where, um, and keeping, keeping tabs on the whole uh, community. Uh, and, you know, whatever we can do to study them, but still give them their space, I think is, is something that we need to do. Uh, because right now, they're under a great deal of stress.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at least in humans, we see that stress plays in a really important role in survival. Um, and I'm sure that it probably translates to whales as well.
1: Uh, yeah, very much so. Yeah. We, we, we just published a paper showing that chronic stress was uh, a good, is a good uh, mechanism by which to understand the poor welfare and short lives of orcas and tanks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. So when you say everybody out of the water, I'm assuming that you mean whale watch boats, tankers, recreational boats, like pretty much anybody that's not a researcher. Is that kind yeah. of...
1: I think so. At this point, I, I know that there are some whale watch boats that do very good work and they may be very helpful in helping to kick tabs on the animals, but they have to really be policed and need to, they need to really, you know, make, you need to make sure that there are, everyone in that community is a good actor. And, um, yeah, I mean, if we do, if we really are serious about you know, giving these animals the, the, the best chance of, of you know, making it, then we have to step away and uh, give them the space that they need. Uh, we can't contribute to acoustic pollution. We can't contribute to, you know, taking off water space. Um, let them be wherever they want to be, you know, so they don't have to worry about where their boats and, of course, you know, I think the main thing is we have to find a way to replenish their their food supply because obviously they can have all the space in the world, but if they don't have anything to eat, um, it's not going to help so I, those are the those are the sort of two ways I can see of going at it
0: yeah i I definitely agree with you um and as far as like, you know, with the regulations with the boats, unfortunately, I, like just what on what I've seen, I feel like it's going to be unrealistic to get all the boats out just because sure. with transportation and international laws and then actually enforcing it and regulating it, that's difficult. I will say that I think the San Juans definitely does a better job than anywhere I've personally seen at like enforcing boats and I I have worked on whale watch boats in the San Juans. And uh-huh. the one thing that I would really like to see implemented policy-wise is um, just as somebody that comes from a background of research, like I did some bottlenose dolphin research in my undergrad, I think that for the captains, like anybody that's a part of those whale watch companies, I think that there needs to be a formal training for, like even receptionists, like anybody that's part of that team that talks about the science of the animals, you know, maybe have them pass a test that they understand, um, but not just like the animal's biology, but more importantly, their behavior. Um, and I think that people like, you know, a lot of the captains are very experienced, but having that formal, um, training of their behavior, I think, could be a really key element if they want to continue to bring people out on the water and inspire them to care about the whales that way. Um, exactly. But I agree with you. You have to, like, your heart has to be in it for the right reason. You can't be out there for the money.
1: And I think that, you know, whale watching has a, a contributing role to play if what you say all that happens. I mean, I know people who run whale watching operations in the San Juans who contribute quite a bit to the science, they do citizen science, and they, there are tracking apps that, that are shared where, you know, you know data are downloaded, uh, into databases and scientists use those data to determine who's where and help track the population so yeah I think I think all of that can be done and we have to just make sure that you know it's it stays highly controlled
0: yeah i I totally agree with you I think that that could be a good thing but yeah that's one issue and then we've got the salmon as well and I think you know everybody there's so many people that love these animals um and the the salmon um is like a huge part of this and we need people working on every end of it as opposed to just sticking to one so I think you're right with this this twofold thing but the thing with the salmon is they're endangered as well so I think it's very important that we take care of that
1: exactly exactly in order for them to feed on salmon the chinook Uh, there have to be salmon. And so if you just follow, you know, the line, the logical line, yeah, you have to protect the salmon. And and that leads you to another link in the chain. And you have this whole network that really has to be restored uh, in order for the Southern residents to survive.
0: Absolutely. Um, So, Do you think that essentially we need to get the dams down or do you see other avenues for um, recovering the salmon population?
1: I think we should use all avenues, quite frankly. Um, I think that at this point, even if we were to take the dams down, um, it will take some time for that to have a positive impact. But yeah, I think we should bring the dams down. I mean, I think that anything we can do to uh, move in the direction of providing more uh, fish for the southern residents, we should do. Um, no one, you know, we won't know which move is the right one until we look back at it. But certainly, we can't, we cannot afford to not do it all, um, simply because they really are in dire circumstance and. Um, nobody really knows what. The, there's no magic um, potion here. We have to do it all.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. And you know, we gotta. We need all hands on deck. Like you know, this exactly. sanctuary is is an important part of it. And there's so many other keys. as, as long as people just focus on whatever their focus is, yes. I think that that's that. That's how we end up being successful. We work as a team and everybody do their part. Um, but. Yeah, I'm hopeful that we're, we're able to do this, and we've got to prioritize the Chinook as well, because those are also remarkable animals that are worthy of saving. Um,
1: Absolutely, on their own, on their own merits.
0: Yes. Yes. Um, I think, you know, these these dams and the, the way that we treat animals, these are, these are more symptoms of a bigger problem. I think we have deeper-rooted cultural issues that we need to address um, as well. And I think, you know, when people look at where they place their values and what culturally they're kind of taught to put values on in the way that we're supposed to think, I think that will ultimately help as well. So, you know, even if people aren't driven, I encourage them to, You know, if they're not driven by the whales, just to learn um, how to understand science and and reassess their values, just because I think that that could help as well.
1: Exactly, exactly. And just stay informed, and you know, every little bit helps. Um, And again, you you know, you don't, you will not, no single person is going to have the answer, but you certainly don't want to contribute to the problem so do what you can and and um you know that means whatever choices you make um make them for the animals not yourself yeah
0: absolutely if you keep in mind at the end of the day it's about the animals then then we'll be good um (laughs) the one question that I always ask people at the end is what have you learned from the whales what can they teach us
1: well, I just think that they can teach us how to live. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that they know how to live and our species is having a hard time with that. Um, and, I, and I don't mean that in a sort of a flippant way at all. I think that they taught us how to be big brain, socially complex uh, beings um, that are not destroying the planet and um, they they provide a model for, you know, what it means to be that. And so, you know, any any notion that, you know, any intelligent, highly intelligent uh, species is going to destroy the planet is certainly not the case um, because we have lots of them on the planet and they're fine. The problem is our species and it's very unique characteristics, our specific characteristics. So I've just learned, you know, what dignity is. I've learned, you know, uh, the importance of family um, and just uh, the, the fact that, you know, the, we are not the only species with culture uh, and, and we're not the only species who care about it each other and our children. Um, and and we really are not alone in that way. So, um, you know, they are a model for, for how to live on this planet. One that we should, we should, um, really look up to. Yeah, absolutely. I 100%
0: agree with you. I, I did think of one final question. Um, so like that's not related to that necessarily, but yeah, I definitely agree. And and if we look to them, I think that that's how we create a better world. And, you know, it's not good to be self-destructive. Um, as far as the last question, that's a little bit off topic. Um, so a lot of, there's like, you know, a lot of people and psychologists connect, um, breath and consciousness. Do you think that it's possible that the whales are more conscious because of the way that they breathe?
1: Um, I don't think that consciousness has a lot to do with breath or breathing per se. I know that they're voluntary breathers, so okay. that means that they um, they have to be mindful of every breath they take, uh, being fully aquatic animals, and if they are anesthetized, anesthetized for some mm-hmm. reason... Um, they they risk being drowned because they just you know and that's why they have uni, uh, unihemispheric sleep so mm-hmm. that one side of the brain is always conscious or alert or awake. Um, so I don't think that because of their breathing they are more conscious. Okay. I think I happen to see all animals with brains as conscious and aware. Um, and what I don't take for granted is the fact that. There's something about humans that makes us the most aware uh, or most conscious beings, whatever consciousness means. There's mm-hmm. really nothing to say that um, there are elements and dimensions of consciousness uh, that are that we don't understand because we're primates and mm-hmm. they're whales. And that's not to say that there's anything magical or supernatural going on, but... Um, you know, we're not the pinnacle of anything. So, who knows? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with I, I you. I think they're 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 probably a lot more situationally aware than we are. Mm-hmm. Um, simply because um they have to be in the kind of environment they live in.
0: Mm-hmm. That definitely makes sense. Yeah. Um do you have any final thoughts or anything that you want to share with people that you think's important?
1: Well, I think it's important to combine science and and advocacy. Uh, I think that's a very important, powerful way going forward to protect animals. And also, uh, anyone out there who's uh, someone who's considering a science career uh, but also wants to do advocacy, don't let anyone tell you you can't do both uh, because that's that's not the case uh, keep going. And, um, and I, uh, hope that, uh, the next time we speak, uh, maybe we'll be in a better situation worldwide. And so will the Southern residents.
0: Yeah. I hope so also. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for, for contributing your time and your thoughts. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. It was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for listening. If you guys are interested in learning more about Lori's work or supporting any of her projects, please visit whalesanctuaryproject.org and camela.org. I'll be sure to
1: place the links in the episode bio. Thanks for joining us. Bye.